why did you decide to start this particular journey with the podcast and the interviewing your family? And I guess I don't really know from an outsider's perspective how much I've really delved into it or really talked about it. But from my perspective, I feel like I had never really like scratched the surface of what it meant to me. And I, I always struggled with, is this a huge part of my identity or is it a thing that happened to me that I've learned to live with despite the fact, or is it like a combination of the two? I'm reading motherless daughters. And one of the things it says is that, you know, grief you experience not in like a linear timeline, but you experience it in cycles and specifically with a daughter losing their mother you experience it with a major life change you experience it when you reach the age of which she was when she passed away and last year specifically was super hard for me I think because I'm reaching the age she was when she passed and I've already exceeded the age that she was when she was diagnosed I talked to my dad and my aunt and they were like, yeah, I mean, I was wondering like when you'd ask me stuff and I was just like, yeah, maybe it just didn't seem like I was ready until now. And they were like, yeah, it's interesting to hear that like there was all this information waiting for me and I just always kind of put it at an arm's distance because I don't know, it makes me sad that I, that I had always been kind of like afraid of, uh, hearing all the good stuff until now. And I don't know, maybe it's because I feel like not like stronger now, but maybe I feel like I'm ready to hear all the good stuff. And maybe before I just wasn't able to. Yeah. Hi everyone. Welcome back to don't tell the babysitter mom's dead. A grief podcast where I, Brittany Ashley, interview a member of the Dead Moms Club and relate it to a piece of pop culture motherless representation. We have reached the season one finale. And as promised, this episode is about the experience of losing my mom. As you could tell from the cry-y vocal fry in the opening bit. To a frustrating degree, I can't recall that many memories of my mom, let alone the details. I was two when she got sick and six when she passed, so she made sure that I had a lot of documentation of her. I have a ton of home videos of us at Disney or playing in our old backyard, a shitload of photo albums that she curated, and many letters that she wrote when she was in the hospital. I hold on to little mementos of hers, like her Sam's Club membership card, her wedding band that I wear when I'm not too paranoid to lose it. In a journal she started to write me that I later used in third grade as scratch paper, which I still harbor tremendous guilt for. But alas, even though I could draw her face perfectly from the millions of pictures I cherish, I don't have a ton of memories in my own brain, which I'm sure also plays into how I mythologize her, like she's a celebrity or something, which I talk about with my friend Laura Zack, who you'll hear a bit in this episode when she interviews me. I don't know, my experience a lot has been like, I see a photo of her and I'm like, it looks like a celebrity or something. And so it doesn't even feel like this person carried me. It feels very unreachable. But I think going home and hearing, you know, more tangible stories was like very helpful to just... Humanize her a little bit. Yeah, and also because I'm like the age basically that she was around this time too it just feels more like I can relate to her more and also just like I can't imagine how fucking like scary that was you know yeah especially having two young kids so to get a more dimensional view of my mom I took a trip back to Illinois I visited the house that I grew up in the cemetery where my mom was buried, and then later chatted with my Aunt Terry, who was my mom's sister-in-law, and knew her since my mom was nine, and then eventually became her hospice nurse. She was the little sister I never had, right away. 
So she wanted to go on dates with me. <laughs> when I'd go to the house, she would have to sit between us or on my lap. And then she would want to play with me. So she was like constantly there. And lastly, I interviewed my dad, Eric. Now, to limit any confusion, my mom's name is Laura, not to be confused with my friend Laura, who is interviewing me. You're going to hear four of our voices sometimes, but I was only in the room with one of them at a time. The magic of editing. Me and my friend were getting beer for a party we were going to. As we were walking out of the store, Laura and her friend were walking in, and Scott said, hey, you guys want to go to a party? And they were like, well, we don't even know you and blah, blah, blah. That's and, fair. And, and we're like, no, we're real cool. It's just right over here. No big deal. We gave the address and they ended up showing up and that was how we met. Once we met, we just saw each other all the time. And it was, I'm sure, within the first month or two that we, you know, confessed our love to each other. <laughs> and how did you know that you were in love with her? because I wanted to be with her all the time. To skip ahead a few years, my mom and my dad got married two years later, then had my sister, and then had me when my mom was 25 and my dad was 27. They were just starting to happily get their lives together. She was just just very happy all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And... How do you remember her being as a mom when we were babies or when I was babies? It was all about, you know, you guys mm -hmm. and being a mom was her main objective, you know, because her mother was such a good and caring mother and she just took it to the next level. Yeah. And how do you think that she saw me as a kid? She, she knew that you were going to be her wild child she said because <laughs> you didn't have fear you just did things you were such a mommy's girl though she was the only one that could handle you <laughs> you just you were wild and free-spirited and fun and funny and oh my god and she just loved you she just loved being around you and you could do no wrong. You could be being the worst little shit in the world. <laughs> and she'd be like, look how cute. And we'd all be like, what? <laughs> I don't care what you're doing. She enjoyed it. Maybe because she knew she wasn't going to have, you know, a lot of time. Mm -hmm. That she enjoyed every, every moment, even the bad. Was all like, oh, so cute. <laughs> so cute. But then, when I was two years old, she started experiencing symptoms in her stomach, despite only being 27 and being fairly healthy. I remember when she got sick, and um, I was really busy. I was working full-time nights at the time, and so I hadn't seen a lot of her, and it was, I think, Rachel's, I want to say, it might have been her eighth grade graduation. She came, and she was telling me how she had been having stomach problems. I said, you need to go to the doctor. And then I saw her and talked to her like over the next couple months a few times, but I was just working and so she was busy. And then she was supposed to take Rachel to lunch for her birthday. And when I woke up, she said she hadn't gone because Laura was sick. So I called her and I said, what's going on? Why are you sick again? And so she said she'd been, she did go to the doctor and they were telling her it was, I don't know, anxiety or some craziness. I said, no. Going to doctors and getting diagnoses of this and then trying that medicine or that whatever and it not working you need to go see a specialist. So she said, okay, I'll make an appointment. But before that appointment happened is when the tumor ruptured her and uh, she ended up in, a, in pain. And she had just lost a lot of weight. And I told her finally, I don't care what your doctors say, go to the emergency room and see what's up. I got a call one night at work that my sister-in-law was in the ER. And I said, well, I have three sister-in-laws, which one? And then they told me Laura. So then I went down there and she just looked so sick. I remember they said to me they were putting her on the, I think it was a pediatric unit because they were going to put her in a isolation room because they thought she had hepatitis. And I, I remember saying to them, get her on my floor because I think she has cancer. I don't know what, just I just knew. And by that night we had a we knew because they had felt the the tumor. Basically, they um, admitted her that night and. 
started doing tests and they found this tumor uh, the size of a grapefruit on her pancreas. Basically said she had about nine months to live. So she was pretty much devastated, but I don't think they told her she had nine months to live. I, I don't know if the doctor did that because he didn't want her to give up, um, but it was... Um, I freaked out. I didn't know what to do. You know, what do you do? I remember when, when she first got sick and she was in the hospital, and that was a tough time because it was all new for everybody, and, you know, you're in this heightened sense of awareness and trying to figure out what's happening and what, what she needs and what she's going to need, and she's going to be diabetic, and she's not going to be able to eat this, and she's going to be, you know, we're talking chemo down the road, and we got to go through this horrible surgery, and uh, I worked on the surgery. By that time, we had got her moved up right away to, our, to my floor. And she kept saying, you have to be my nurse. And I kept saying, no, I can't. I can't be your nurse because I was so afraid I would make a mistake. You know, there was just so much. I said, but I'll be here. I'll always be here, but I can't be the person taking care of you. And th that was in the beginning. And <clears throat> But I went through all of her stuff. Like when she had the biop liver biopsy, I remember standing in the room. When they put in her central line, I, st I stayed in the room with her and held her hand. So I, I remember doing all that. And it was like sometimes it would be so hard to watch that I would just like have to say okay just go into nurse mode don't you have to kind of shut things down or you can't can't deal with it and um that was probably probably the hardest thing I ever had to go through because I had never really lost anybody up till then that was really important to me so I had never dealt with you know a death that was going to affect my life like that and um that was the knowing that she had this and knowing at that point not knowing how long she had these two little kids what was what was the diagnosis what was the prognosis going to be right in the beginning we didn't know you know was, was she going to even make it through the surgery what was going to happen and um that was that was a hard transition to go from you know I mean, I always, even after my divorce, thought of her as my sister. But I never thought we'd have to go through that. That just was un unthinkable. So while my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, her dad, my grandpa, was sick with diabetes complications. So we moved in next door to my grandma, my grandpa, and my great-grandma, which I'll admit sounds like some bizarro sitcom, but in reality was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to my early childhood. So pretty much like your entire, like all of your memories of her are like of her being sick? Yeah. How much of my childhood do you think I spent in hospitals? I would say from three to six a lot of the time she'd be in the hospital for a week or two or just it, it it was different each time yeah it was a lot of it was in hospitals doctor's appointments going through chemo going through radiation how was I like in hospitals like was I well behaved or was I like crazy? Uh, well you were you were a kid and you know I couldn't get mad at you over it because you don't didn't know what was going on <laughs> you were you would the crack up of everybody and you would I can remember when the, the the time that sticks in my mind the most is when you were I don't know four I guess that was when you kept asking me how do I spell my name Mm -hmm. I tell you, it's T-E-R-R-I. And then you forget and you come back and you'd be dancing around and you were like loud and we were in the waiting room and I'd be like, shh, and you'd be like really loud and singing and dancing and just putting on the show. <clears throat> so finally, you come back again and ask me how to spell my name. This went on, oh, I mean like just, you were just for fun. So finally I said T-E-R-R-I, boom, T-E-R. So you danced around the hospital for days, dancing in T-E-R-R-I, boom. And just making everybody laugh. But you know, you were young enough that the hospital wasn't scary to you. The whole experience wasn't scary. You just took it in stride and just... I actually remember you more than I remember Heather at that time. But I don't know if it's because she was in school or... Or you could just leave her on her own a little more because she was a little bit older. You needed to be watched because you'd be off going somewhere. So. Yeah. Were you there the time that my butt got stuck in the automatic doors? <laughs> no. Yeah. I wasn't. 
It like didn't know. register me, and so it just squished me, but it only squished my ass. <laughs> I don't I can remember saying to Dr. K, you cannot let her die. She cannot because we can't handle Brittany. <laughs> You've got to get Brittany to kindergarten. You've got to get Brittany to kindergarten. <laughs> You've got to keep her going. And I remember having those conversations with Dr. K because he loved your mom. He even came out to the house one time as she was getting really bad to give her some medication. And um, I remember him saying to me one time, he goes, gets him every time when she's there because she comes in always upbeat, always positive, with Brittany in tow and hot dogs and french fries. <laughs> he says, other people come in, they are puking with their chemo, and not her, they got hot dogs and french fries. And, and coloring books and crayons. And he said she always made it a positive experience with the girls. I remember him talking about that and how she made such an impact on him. I just drove to the town that I grew up in and I'm sitting outside of the house. Much has changed. I'm sure there's like sticker decals from all the stickers that were on my window. I have so many memories of that house. I know every square inch. The kitchen that my dad designed all in Coca-Cola products, basically. He made it like an old diner because my mom loved Coca-Cola. And it was just this like old 50s style kitchen with a rotary phone and diner seats and black and white checkered floors. I remember that living room where we had all of our Christmases. My bedroom that was just always covered in toys. My sister's room, my dad and my mom's room. I remember spending a lot of nights sleeping in my dad's room. Did it seem like I was aware? Did it seem like I was just some... I think you knew things were changing. I don't know that you, at that age, were able to process that she was going to die. But it was obvious that you knew things were going on. You never really asked questions about the death part or that she was dying, but you would ask about her being sick. You know, and you would... You would I remember I could see, remember you, like, looking in the room to see what she was doing now when she was laying in the bed and... Or when we were in there taking care of her. I remember a time when her and I had a con- discussion because the house was a mess. And she had always been, like I told you, when the, when Heather was born, she was cleaning baseboards in the house. And I went in and I said, we got to clean this up. Let's get this cleaned up so you can live a little easier. This is hard. And she looked at me and she goes, no, I, I don't care. I just want to, I don't want to be known as, I don't want them to remember me as a mean mom or a bad mom. I said, they won't remember you as a bad mom. That, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Me? It's like, it's so difficult because I think that my mind blocked a lot out and a lot of my memories are things that I did wrong. You know, it's like tripping over her IV wire on Christmas or <laughs> like, you know, sitting in my door frame and telling her I hate her because I, you know, it's, you know, stuff like that. But those were the few and far between. Yeah. Because... The joy you brought her mm-hmm. was. Yeah, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> I remember the IV stuff. <laughs> she was always like, because Brittany would be running around, there'd be IVs, there'd be tubing, but there was also stuff because she was having a hard time keeping up and she wouldn't let yeah. us clean for her. And so she was having a hard time. And so, um, but the joy, I mean, she just, all, all she wanted was to be a mom. And that was the part when she was getting closer to the end. And I, I remember laying in bed with her. I would, those last week I slept there and um, I could just remember we were watching crazy you know sitcoms on TV and whatever and talking about you and Heather and you know she just she just didn't want to leave you so even though my mom was told that she would only live for nine months she fought to stay alive for four years in that time we went on so many vacations like to Disney to the Wisconsin Dells we got two dogs got a pool and basically just tried to push a decade worth of memories into a couple of years as she continued to fight to stay alive. Was there anything that you guys wanted to do together that you got to do before she passed? It was just mostly spend time with you and your sister going places and doing things. And 
that was really all we wanted to do just the simple things for her to be strong enough to you know get up and help you guys get up ready for school or you know get ready for halloween or whatever the case was or go to birthday parties and things like that were there any happy memories from this time yeah there were there were bittersweet you know memories you know anytime someone has been diagnosed there's a black cloud always and you have to either break through it or get caught up in it and it's easy to get caught in it but you have to get out of it and that's what I tried to do you know that's why with you know I would try and take you guys out to eat when she was sick in the hospital and do things to try and take everyone's minds off of what was really going on do you remember at all or did anyone tell you about like how your parents when your mom was still alive like talked to you and your sister about her sickness had they addressed the fact that she was going to die I don't remember we basically just said that mom was sick and we she never really wanted you guys to know what was inevitable um and that's kind of how it was. It was trying just to keep a happy face, you know, try and give her less stress and keep her comfortable and optimistic. And I think you both sensed that you were probably going to lose her, maybe. And I don't think that made you guys, you know, show her more attention or get closer to her. I just think it was just something that happened. Being a kid and seeing your parent in a wheelchair, I think that I probably could extract some sort of meaning from that. The major thing that I remember is when she told us that she was going to start wearing wigs um, because she was going to lose her hair. I remember being at my grandma's house. This was like another memory that like came back when I was like sitting in front of mine at my grandma's house. She had the, like this like beautiful dark brown like almost black hair like it was very full and beautiful and we were at my grandma's house and I remember her hair looked different like it had it looked pretty much the same but it looked like she had just gotten bangs but then she took it off and it was like basically the same hair underneath except without bangs but I think it was her way of like showing me you know a five or six year old like this is not different than this like this is okay mm -hmm. And then me and my sister and her all cut our hair because I think with her chemo, it was like going to be easier for her to lose her hair in like smaller chunks rather than like really long chunks. Mm -hmm. But I remember us all getting our hair cut together because mm. I had like super long hair when I was a child. You all cut your hair at the same time right before she was going to have the chemo because she thought it'd be easier to lose the short hair than the long hair. Right. Do you remember if she had, like, a dilemma about losing her hair? Yeah, she didn't like the idea of it, but if the chemo was going to help her live longer, then it was worth losing her hair over. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she, didn't, she didn't expect to live, but she wanted to live longer. That was why she even went through these other different rounds of chemo and, and radiation. She had a hard time with losing weight and losing the hair thinning, and that was really hard for her because she was such a pretty girl. So to have to get really thin and start to look sick because she didn't want to be sick. Or We talked about her doing videos and uh, leaving videos for when you guys were older. But at that time, she couldn't do it because she never... She didn't want to believe that this was ever going to come to an end. And so she kept saying, I'll do it later when, I'm, mm -hmm. when I need to. And then towards the end, she wanted to do some videos, but she was too sick. You know, she never wanted me and my sister to forget her. And so we had tons of home videos, just like stacks and stacks of VHS tapes. There for a while, she just, she was all gung-ho at first about documenting this and video that and, you know, this and that. But... At some point, she just, it, it 
she that's all she could think of and then she would regret not taking pictures and then she'd say why didn't i just you know it became where she was regretting not doing more to document but i tried to explain to her that it's not about that you know it's about the memories you keep inside mm -hmm. is there any memories that you can think of that i should keep inside you know, she always wanted to make sure your birthday was special because it was after, right after Christmas. And I think you should remember how hard it was for your mom to get the energy to go to your birthday party at the bowling alley, the, you know, your sixth birthday. Because she, she, it was sad for her. It was hard for her. It was physically hard for her, but she wanted to do it she it was like come hell or high water she wanted to make that special it was rough for me that day because i knew that it was probably going to be the last birthday you had with her every minute of every day after she was diagnosed all she wanted to do was be there for you and your sister you know it was that was her main thing whatever she had to do whatever pills she had to take that the doctor prescribed to live one more day one more week longer was what it was and the fact that she went through so much pain those last you know six months you know just to stay alive just showed what kind of person she was you know she could have just given up a long time before that but thankfully she had you two to live for what do you remember about the few days before she passed? I just remember her being really weak, and um, we didn't talk much. She just kind of gave me looks of appreciation for helping her because I would at night change her feeding bags and her, you know, I couldn't do anything with her meds, but just trying to keep her comfortable and part of me was freaking out because probably a year before that she had mentioned to me that she wanted to die on a day that you and your sister wouldn't forget the day she died and as it was getting closer to valentine's day i had a feeling that she was gonna die on valentine's day do you feel like there was like a control that she had over when she died? Oh, uh, no doubt. A couple minutes before midnight on the 13th, uh, you know, I was laying in bed and she poked me and woke me up and I looked over at the clock and it was 11.58 and she took her oxygen out of her nose and within like four or five minutes, she was gone. And then I realized it was Valentine's Day. It was like, pfft, wow. Masterful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in control to the end. So what happened from there? Like, you had to call... I had to call 911 and just said, I've got two young kids in the house and my wife just passed and I don't need them seeing their mother being taken out of the house. So... If any of you come into my house and I hear your radio go off or I hear you guys talking real loud, I said, I'm going to lose it. I said, so do me the favor. Be quiet. And were they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. How long did it take them to get there? I don't even know. It was just... It seemed like forever, but it was probably only ten minutes. Was there any moment that you got to have with her? Right as she was passing, you know. I told her that I understood why and what and what was going on. And, and I loved her and that was it. Um, do you remember, like, that morning how you, like, figured out how you were going to tell us? Yeah, I, I was up for probably the next five hours trying to figure that out. <laughs> um, basically, all I just said was, um, Mom 
went to heaven last night. You know, her pain is over. She can rest. I remember being very excited to get, like, to go to school and, like, get Valentine's and all that. And I remember waking up and then going into my dad's room and me and my da- me and my sister sitting on my dad's bed and him telling us that mom passed away and that we weren't going to school. And what happened that day? Did we like go to grandma's or did we stay with you or? You know, I, I honestly, I don't even know. After that, the next thing I remember was being at the funeral home with the service. I don't even remember. I remember having to go to the the cemetery, to the funeral home, and thankfully my dad came into town and um, helped me out with uh, some of the costs for that. Um, But, yeah, I don't remember much. I don't remember much of the funeral at all. I think I really blocked that out. That whole time was just a blur. I have very little recollection of it. It's like I can't bring it back. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe your mind protecting itself in I that think so. way. I think so. While I was home, I visited the cemetery where my mom is buried. I cut out a lot of the weeping while listening to Michael Bolton, who she used to go and see in concert all the time when she was sick. But I kept in the bit about how I'm so sure of where her and my grandparents' gravesites are, only to be utterly wrong. Which I feel like was kind of indicative of my making up facts sometimes about her and the loss. Like thinking that her favorite movie was Pretty Woman because that was one of the only VHS tapes she left behind. But apparently it was not. Or telling people that I was named after someone she saw on Oprah, also apparently wrong, was named after a soap opera character. It's been a few years since I've been to the cemetery where she's buried, but I always know exactly where the grave is. There's like weird little milestones, like you go around the war monument, you take a left at the high tombstone with a little ball on it. the fuck is it? Oh, fuck. It's back there. It's so fucking weird. Like, there's a tiny part of me that's like, there's no way that she's under there. My mom's favorite candy was chocolate Twizzlers, and so I went to the Jewel Osco and picked up flowers and a pack of chocolate Twizzlers. I'm just eating a chocolate Twizzler. Staring at my mom's tombstone. And hoping that the mold and the shit that's in between the letters gets out. I should have brought a knife or something. When I was a preteen, the movie that I made my dad rent pretty much every weekend was Now and Then. So much so that he had to lightly enforce some variety into my blockbuster rentals. Now and Then is a coming-of-age film about four best friends who have a crazy summer in their small town. It came out in 1996 and was written and directed by women. Hello, Leslie Linka Gladder and I'm Arlene King. The plot is fully relatable and very much like my own summers growing up. Staying out until the mosquitoes eat you alive, riding your bikes virtually everywhere, and, you know, performing a seance. Something I did do, thank you very much. Of the four best friends who are all going through their own versions of trauma, perhaps the most notable is Roberta. No matter what I do, they just keep getting bigger. Roberta grew up with her dad and three older brothers. Her mother died when she was four. That's her in the picture. Roberta never left the house without that picture. Played by Christina Ricci, Roberta was the quippy, brave tomboy that I so wholly identified with. 
And also the first time we meet Roberta, she's taping her boobs, which I understand because they always got in the way of my swing, which speaking of, she always beat the living shit out of guys that she played sports with, both literally and figuratively. Okay, let's go, Roberta. Home run. All the way home. Who are you kidding? Girls can't play softball. What did you say? I said, girls can't play softball. What you doing? Roberta, remember, you're a lady. Why don't you go home and play with your dolls? The only doll Roberta's got is a G.I. Joe. Crazy bitch. Foul mouth. How does it feel to get the crap kicked out of you by a girl, huh? It's too bad your mother's dead. Somebody needs to teach you to act like a girl. Chauvinist ass kickings aside, maybe one of the more nuanced representations of a motherless daughter that I've ever seen in a character, no less a kid, is Roberta's relationship to death. Dying is a definite motif in the film. One of the major plot points is about the girls trying to figure out how dear Johnny died. But of the four friends, Roberta's the only one who questions her own mortality, a somewhat common side effect of losing a mother young. When the girls are on their way to Greenfield, they stop for a quick swim in a lake. The three other girls walk into the lake, but Roberta climbs up to a high tree and wants to jump into the lake. Look out below! Roberta, don't! It's too shallow! Bombs away! Her friends have pulled her out of the lake to perform CPR. Stop breathing. Someone's got to give her mouth to mouth. You do mouth to mouth, I'll do CPR. The other way around. Out of my way. Well, it's good to know who your true friends are. Chrissy here is the only one who's really... Oh, my Chrissy! Don't you ever do anything like that to me again. Ever! It was a joke! That wasn't the first time Roberta faked her own death. Earlier that year, she scared the hell out of us when she jumped off the roof and pretended she broke her neck. None of us had experienced a loss like Roberta's, and we didn't understand her jokes. But she kept trying to make death funny, maybe to make it easier for herself. By faking her own drowning, Roberta is able to remind her friends how much this death is deeply embedded into her life, but she can do it from a safe distance without having to be vulnerable. The film does eventually go there with her, which Christina Ricci plays so heartbreakingly well. While the friends are at the Greenfield Library looking through archived newspapers to find information relevant to their seance, again, very relatable. Roberta finds a clipping about her mom's death, and she finds out the full, brutal truth about her mom's car accident, rather than the softer version that she had heard from her dad. Roberta, it's okay. No! No! Not okay! Why did they have to die? Why did she have to die? My dad lied to me. He said that this beautiful angel swooped down to earth and carried her away. Before she had a second to feel any pain. <laughs> Why did you have to die? I want to hear the light of me. A storyline that didn't make it in the final release of the film is an element that would have fully been even further proof that I am Roberta and Roberta is me. And honestly, it would have been groundbreaking for queer motherless daughters. In an article called The Secret Lesbian History of Now and Then, written by friend of the pod Trish Bendix, it's confirmed that Roberta's character was actually written and filmed as a lesbian, but it got taken out in the very late stages of production. To which I say, oh, come on. I'm Arlene King, the screenwriter and out badass, says, The script was written and then we shot the movie with the intention of Roberta being gay. But in the present day scenes when Roberta was Chrissy's gynecologist during the labor scene, people freaked out, Marlene said. They were like, ew, she's a lesbian and she's looking at her vagina. And we were like, what, seriously, do you care? 
A moment of silence for the bounty of straight men who are gynecologists, and somehow it's not distracting to the masses. In the present-day scenes, adult Roberta is played by Rosie O'Donnell, which, little-known fact, she also lost her mom when she was 11 years old. Rosie was very upset that they had to change the storyline last minute. They had to add this really forced line of dialogue to, quote, clarify Roberta's sexual preference, quote, when the adult women get together. Bendix says in her article, Apparently it was less distracting that Roberta have an invisible live-in boyfriend than any kind of relationship with a woman. But regardless of the heteronormativity killing a really great storyline, Roberta in Now and Then will always be etched in time as one of the realist depictions of motherlessness. Scott? Yeah? If you mention this to anyone, especially your brothers, I'll beat the shit out of you. For the first two years after my mom passed, I spent a lot of time with my grandma and my great-grandma right next door. I have a lot of fond memories from that time with them and my sister, playing all day long with my sister and our dogs, uh, reading with my grandma, and watching Cubs games with my great-grandma. A few years later, my dad got remarried to my first stepmom, who at the risk of sounding cliche, was fully evil. Like, hiding my mom and my dad's wedding photo album and telling us to get over it because she's never coming back. Alas, we moved out of the house that we lived in with my mom, which I kind of always thought was my stepmom's choice, but turns out that it was my dad's. Off mic, when I was interviewing him, he told me that he couldn't be in that house that she passed away in anymore, which at the time I didn't get, but now I fully like, sympathize with. Were there kind with. of like unfolding layers of the impact of the loss? Yeah. Everyone in my school knew what happened. Like me and my sister were the kids who lost their mom and like there was nobody else in the school that, that happened to. So it was just like this thing that everyone knew. But when my dad got remarried and we moved to a new town when I was in sixth grade, like I'd always known when I was a kid, like there's this thing that's different about you for whatever fucking reason and this is just like something that you'll have to navigate like in first grade which was you know the obviously like the year after she passed and it was mother's day and everyone had to like make this thing for their moms I remember feeling super left out and then my teacher who was like this stern older woman was like oh you make it for your grandma and your great-grandma because they're you know they're your moms and like, I didn't really realize it until later that how hard it was for me to transition into this new school was so related to the fact that I had just left, like, all this comfort, like, all this history, and I had to start over and tell new kids and new teachers that I couldn't make this thing for Mother's Day or that, no, my parents aren't divorced. You'll, you'd never know how much being motherless is embedded into your life. You know, and, and it's like a part of carpooling or a part of this or part of that. Like, you'll just always be surrounded by the fact that you are motherless. And so moving to a new town where I had I felt like I had to hide that and then I felt like I had to share it. And I was already so shy moving like that was such a traumatic experience where I like spent most of sixth grade either in the nurse's office saying that I needed to go home because I was sick spending in the guidance counselor's office saying that I couldn't go on this field trip or I couldn't do this because I was too scared or I spent it like at home or in you know the school bathroom like it just makes so much more sense that I wasn't just like weird and antisocial that it was like because I moved away from all of what I knew and, and in some way was like leaving behind that in a way mm -hmm. and like my grandma my great grandma were like huge in my life because after my mom passed away and my dad had to continue to work to make money but also to like distract himself my grandma and my great grandma took care of me and my sister and so them like moving and then us moving it was just like the end of an era in a way of like having a mother figure take care of you because my stepmom uh had no interest in being kind to me and my sister and so it was kind of like the end of an era of having uh, the end of the maternal yeah vibes 
And did you ever, like, hear me tell people that my mom died? Or what was, like, your experience with, like, me being vocal about it? I don't think I really ever heard either of you say those words to anyone. Wow. Yeah. I don't, no, I don't remember that at all. And how was I as a child after that? Did you see, like, any shift in me? Um, yeah, you, you seemed a little less happy-go-lucky, you know? You were less um, openly happy about things. I don't know if that's even made sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. There was a, a, a darkness, you know? I had the same thing going on, so, I mean... Yeah. People said the same thing about me, so. The only thing I think at times, and it made me think of it when you were writing before, and I would read all your stuff that you wrote, and there was a sadness, underlying sadness that I would feel from you when I would read it. And I can I remember I would say to her then after I go, I read what Brittany wrote today. Did you read it? And then I'd say to her, get in her heart because she needs some good, she needs some joy, and you need to guide her there and um that would make me sad sometimes because i just felt like you had some un so much unresolved mm -hmm. sadness that i was hoping that someday that you would be able to work through and and um and i then i would sit and think that if she had been allowed to be here and and give you the guidance firsthand that you wouldn't have had that sadness and do you think about like what life would have been like had she not passed i try not to because I don't think I'd be able to do justice to it. Yeah. That was the thing that she always said, that you would be the strong one. I don't know if that was a curse or what. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was told that too by my mother, and being the strong one isn't as easy as it seems. What do you think she would be most proud of me for? Probably for the way that we have carried our relationship. Yeah. When are you reminded of her most? Hmm. Anytime I think of you or Heather. Yeah. <laughs> Which is every day. Yeah. What was your relationship like with your dad growing up and like how do you think it was impacted? Well, you can trace, like, a femininity in me when I was, like, pre-my mom passing away. And then you watch me kind of, like, evolve into a tomboy and be very interested in sports and be very interested. Like, my dad was a baseball player, and so I was very, like, I was the only girl on my baseball team, and I very much was a daddy's girl in that way. I have so much empathy for what my dad went through and how he he could have like been the biggest asshole and hated life, but he continued to be like the kindest, sweetest person and most like loving and supportive dad. And I watched the way that like my friends' dads were to them. And like, especially like if you've ever had your dad like coach a team sport, mm, like you yeah. see the worst side of a parent but like I never saw that with my like my dad was always just the most wonderful supportive parent and he could have been that way all along even if my mom hadn't passed away so like I only had the experience of like respecting my dad so much and just thinking that he's the greatest so hard to say but I'd like to believe it'd be the same you're saying that's why you're gay that's exactly what I'm saying um <laughs> Because no, my I dad actually, played baseball, I, know, I am like, gay. Became more a yeah. <laughs> No, but I did have the question of like, how do you think your discovery of your identity or coming out was affected by her death, if at all? I think that like, because I've lived so much of my life as like an other in a way, like there's always been like this this layer of otherness to my life because... I've almost always been the only person I've known, especially the only woman I've known who's, who's lost a mom. 
this is such a weird story that like might not make sense, but have you ever had the experience of thinking that like you are like the star of your universe and everything else isn't actually real? It just like exists for you to interact with. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common like when you're younger, especially. Yeah. So yeah. like my mom died when I was in kindergarten and then in first grade there was this like project that we had to do where our mealworms would turn into beetles and it was the entire class like it was the entire first grade classes and there was this day where we switch with the kindergarten classes so like for one day we're all in the kindergartners class all the kindergartners are in the first grade class and I remember being like very excited because I like was a perfectionist so I did everything right and I was very excited to see how my mealworm turned into a beetle because it was like you know progress and progress for weeks and we got back from like the swap day and our teacher was like so there was an incident where um one of the kindergartners actually spilled one of the projects and like it died so unfortunately someone has to start all over again and there was something in me that was like well my mom died last year so I'm sure that this is like my project and it ended up being my project but it started like this thing in me where I always thought that the bad news would always be mine I always thought that like the otherness would always be mine it's just been a common thread in a way of like of course like bad shit's gonna happen to you like of course there's gonna be like level of struggle that other people won't have to face. I did a really great job of like performing normalcy just in general, like when I'd be around my friends who all had these parents who were still together and I had to kind of like perform this like normalcy that everyone else did. And so when it came to performing like heterosexuality, I think that I was like ultra good at that because I'd just been so used to trying to fit in. And so once it like finally bubbled to the surface enough where I had to experience it, it was kind of like a, oh, of course I'm not straight. Like, of of course I have to experience now the struggle of like coming out. I wasn't surprised, not because of context clues, but because it just felt like a series of, of course. Yeah, it's like a Murphy's Law version yeah. of events, like. Interesting. Like, what are the silver linings, if there are any, in terms of, or are there any, I guess is the question. I don't know. It's just so hard to say because who knows if, like, the person that I was meant to become is different than than the person who I would have been had I had, you know, uh, the main person who loves you unconditionally around. So it's, it's hard to say what my life would have looked like because it probably would have been like a lot less lonely. I mean, I think like I'm probably a lot more sensitive. I think that the silver lining of whatever it is, is something that maybe hasn't been a benefit to me until maybe recently or like until I was an adult where like being sensitive is cool or like being vulnerable is cool. And being aware of your feelings and being empathetic towards others is cool, but going through your entire life that way and going through that as, you know, a preteen, as a teenager, that wasn't cool. And so it's, it's always weird to have the things that you were mocked for or the things that you like suffered with when you were younger, suddenly be cool when you're older, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so it's hard to... Thanks, Brene Brown. Yeah. So it's hard to see what the silver lining was because I wonder if I would have been... If I would have suffered less as a kid, you know? And I, and I don't think that I'm, like, free of suffering now. Like, there's a whole other level of, like, existential crisis that I have because my mom passed away when I was so young. And there's this, like, whole layer of intimacy and guidance and support that I that I never experienced. And so... Maybe the silver lining is that I gave it to myself. And so in some ways, I know that I'm capable of uh, 
going through a lot because I already have. I've already kind of gone through the most tragic thing you can go through. Even now, listening to this recording of a few weeks ago, I feel like I've outdated my feelings. I have a completely different relationship to the answer to this question. Pushing the loss away is connected to the, quote, silver lining. I think that I was afraid to talk about her and hear about how wonderful she was because then I'd have to give up convincing myself that, you know, I didn't need her or, you know, that the silver lining was that I became this independent, creative, emotionally present person. But after this whole experience, I've come to realize that I owe it to my mom to learn about her and to feel closer to her and to not be afraid of that. And I feel closer to her now than I ever did. And that feels kind of crazy. And, you know, I'm in no way done with my grieving or my learning or my loving or being comforted by her love, but I can carry her with me. You know, I can carry her wedding band that I kept in a jewelry box and not be afraid of losing it. Instead of fixating on every single aging line I detect on my face or being so insecure about my body changing with age, I can welcome it. Like I'm getting to age for both me and my mom. I can let her live through me and let the people who also loved my mom see her in me too. Is there any parts of her that you see in me sometimes? Yes. Yes. First of all, physically, certain things that you say or do when you move your, and when you, like that, she did that because her nose. All of my nose. Yes. <laughs> she did that same thing. But also just sometimes your mannerisms when you say or smile or do certain things, I can see her. Personality wise, you remind me a lot of her. Like we can just sit and talk. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was like. She was easy to talk to, easy to open up to, just a very um, caring you definitely got a lot of her traits. Good ones. Good ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was stubborn, though. <laughs> she could be very stubborn. The way you take on things and when you want to do something, you do it. Just a lot of the positive things that she did, like being passionate about things and those types of things, like mm-hmm. drive and goal-driven and because she was, even though her most of her goal was being a good mom, she worked at it. And this whole experience of interviewing others who've gone through the pain of losing their mom has opened me up in a way that I didn't know was possible. When I first started recording episodes for this podcast about six months ago, I didn't, I didn't really understand why I was doing it or why I was putting myself through so many hours of trauma um, I just knew that I really wanted to Um, I even say that maybe I felt like I had to and I don't feel like I would have been able to do this episode had it not been listening to everyone else be so vulnerable with me and be just so wise I mean I can pick a thing that I learned from every single person for the first time in a decade I'm spending Thanksgiving with my dad and my sister, which is also a day before my mom's birthday. And I'm literally going to take Zach's method of starting a tradition of talking about our favorite memory of her every year. I'm going to be doing that. And had I not listened to Mikey talk about how he continues a relationship with both of his parents who passed, it would have never even occurred to me that I wouldn't just have to have to cut that off. The guilt that Allison feels towards not being the perfect daughter while her mom was around, I want to extend the same compassion that I do for her to myself. I want to channel my pain into creativity like Anna Marie. I don't even think I would have interrogated how my mom dying impacted my queerness if it weren't for talking to Mara. And like Brianna said about her own parents, she carries them with her. She is them. I want to take the parts of my mom that are like me, the caring, positive, strong, loves to go to concerts, but also loves to stay in so much, eventually someday becoming a good mom. I want to carry those parts with me and let her live through me. 
Dear Brittany, I wanted to write you a letter. I hope you won't be too bored waiting for me during my surgery. You can play with the stuff that I gave you, or maybe you and Heather can play together. Try and listen to Daddy and Grandma, okay? Remember that I love you, and I will try and get better as fast as I can, so I can come home really soon with you and Heather. That's where I love to be, with you and Heather. Brittany, you are a very special girl. You always make me laugh and smile. Remember always, I love you. Mom.